Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. We're in our second week of our sermon series called Gospel-Centered Church. And as Pastor Derek said last week, we want to focus on the big E on the I chart. For our perspective, it's not enough to just be a Christian church. It's not enough to be a good church. We don't have time for anything less than centering our entire lives and our entire life of our church and the entire culture of our church on the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That is our bullseye. That's the big E. And we want nothing less than gospel centrality with all things. And so this means actually for it to saturate into our culture, we have to do some things differently. We got to teach differently. We celebrate differently. And we even serve differently. We love differently. That's what we're talking about today. But I want us to begin with understanding what is the gospel and what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? And then we're going to talk about this idea of the fulfilled law of love, love being a central theme in Christianity, a central theme to the gospel, and how love within the gospel centrality of our church shapes what we do and how we even talk about the love of God. So first, I want to give us a definition of the gospel. The gospel is the true story about Jesus, who is God, stepping out of eternity into human history, solving the problem of brokenness, reuniting us with God our Father, giving us himself through the Holy Spirit, and ushering in a completely new way of life that ends in peace and glory with himself. Gospel literally means good news. And this is the good news about Jesus, specifically his work to solve the problem of brokenness, reunite us with our Father, give us himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then bring us into a completely new way of living. And then when we center our life and our church around that, it really does change practically our practices. And today we're going to look at how believing this message and applying it to every area of our church family, how it shapes everything within our church culture. And as Pastor Derek again said last week, the gospel is like the engine that drives our church. So last week we looked at Jesus plus nothing. This week we're looking at the fulfilled law of love. And we're going to center on one text, although we're going to look at a couple of different texts from uh, the author John, uh, but we're going to center on the kind of one central verse, 1 John 4, 10 to 11. Is what it says. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or wrath averting sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So I'm drawing a dichotomy. I'm drawing a comparison in this sermon, and we're going to see it with the three points. But before we begin to talk about specifically love, I want to talk about the, a Christian church versus a gospel-centric church as it relates to love. You see, when you walk into most Christian churches, um, and this is no knock on any church that is not any specific church that I'm thinking about, but most churches' vision statement is this, love God and love others. And the idea behind most Christian churches is that God loved us. Jesus died for us, and you must now 
love others, that God did his part to save you. Now you do yours to love and serve one another. And really, there's a, a deep connection in most modern Western churches that love equals service. That if you're truly going to love, you've got to serve other people. And that your job is to serve within the church, to love others, to go on missions trips, right? And that we, and even churches boldly state this, that we exist to love God and love others. And I would say that that is the bulk of churches, both within Clarksville and within Western culture. But here's the difference. There's a difference with gospel-centric churches. A gospel-centric church says, be loved by God and love others in response to his love. So a gospel-centric church says, God loves us. Jesus died for us. And we are first and foremost invited to receive this love. That God did his part and he did your part too. That love is actually not just service, but love is deeper than that. It's actually seeking the highest and greatest good of another person, even to your own detriment. That your job is to be loved, to rest in the finished work of Jesus that he's done for us without having to earn it. And that as you rest in his love, that we exist to receive the love of God. And as we do that, we will naturally respond out in love and service towards others. Do you catch the difference there? With gospel-centric love, here's the definition. Gospel-centric love is a self-giving love that seeks the highest and greatest good of another. That's what love is. It seeks the highest and greatest good of another person, and it's a self-giving love. Now, my friends, with a gospel-centric church and a gospel-centric theology, order is essential. Who loves first? God. And the context is essential. How do we love? We don't love out of gritting our teeth and trying really hard. We actually love in response to God's love for us. So the point of the whole Christian life then is different. The point of the Christian life isn't to serve others and it's not to exist to love God and love others. That's our activity, right? That begins and ends with us. But in fact, our whole purpose, the context for our entire life is that we receive the love and then naturally that will bear fruit in response and reproduction of love in others. So why do so many churches get it wrong? I mean, if you've been in a Western church culture in any way, shape, or form, or you just Google church and you go to their vision statement, we exist to love God and love others, will probably hit nine out of 10 times. So why do so many churches get it wrong? It, the idea is that it's, it's, the difference is the lens that we choose to put on when we read the scriptures. My friends, it is very easy to read the Bible like a list of rules and moralism. It's extremely easy to say tit for tat, that you do this, you get that. It is hard to read the Bible as a list of what God has done for us. And we're going to see here in a few minutes why the human heart is bent towards always seeking to work and earn love. But we got to look just two inches below the surface. And I think as we look at these texts today, you're going to see how the subtle language in the scripture shapes big ideas about God's love and our love. So three points for today. Love receives first. Love responds second. And third, love reproduces third. So love receives first. And with that, I, I would be a bad pastor if I wouldn't talk about my new baby, right? So that's the benefit of being a pastor and preaching is I get to talk about what I like to talk about and use analogies that fit in my life. And so I want to talk about my 
new daughter, Autumn. She's two and a half months old. And admittedly, she's an easy baby. She's already mostly sleeping through the night. My wife and I like to call her a trick baby. She's the easy one. So the next one's probably going to be hard. Um, many of you know and have been in our house and we have a little uh, laundry room upstairs and we set up a corner of that as like a little milk station, right? So we've got a, a little mini fridge that has some milk and stuff and, and we've got a heater on that to heat up the milk. So in, in the times where Autumn does wake up at night or very early in the morning, um, I'm typically the one that gets up as, as Rachel's working throughout the week. And so um, I, I get up and I don't walk into her room immediately. I can hear her crying on the monitor. But the first thing I do is I go into the laundry room, which has our little milk station, right? And I pull out a bottle and I prep the bottle warmer and I hit heat on the bottle warmer, right? And then what I do is I, I usually take a trip to the bathroom. I get myself a glass of water and then I get prepared to serve my daughter. And so by the time all that happens, the milk bottle is heated up. Now, what happens, I've already turned the monitor off. I know that she needs me, right? So I'm hearing her in the other room just through the walls, and she's crying. And from her vantage point, she's been crying for five minutes already, right? But what she doesn't see is my activity. She's not even aware of it yet. She's a, she's a baby, right? She doesn't know it, even if she would see it herself with her own eyes. But by the time I walk into her room, I have taken care of my needs. I've taken care of getting a glass of water. So I'm kind of hydrated and I've got her bottle hot and fresh and ready to go. So I do a quick change. I get her a little bit more awake. I sit her down in the rocker and I feed her. You see, I anticipate her needs. I know her very well. She's my daughter. I've known her from the day that she was born and there up to this point has not been a day that I've been apart from her since she's been born. So I anticipate her needs and the meeting of her needs. And the meeting of her for her needs is my responsibility and my solemn duty as a father and as a man. And it's expressing my love for her. So mean dot, when I walk in and if I were to change her, she's still going to keep crying. And if that would delay me getting her milk, sometimes I've got to do things before I walk into her room. So when I walk into her room, I am ready to serve her, love her, and meet her needs. Does that make sense? I'm anticipating her needs and meeting them, even if she doesn't perceive that I am, even if she's not seeing that I'm doing that with her own eyes or even understand what I'm doing. Now, of course, we're drawing this connection with God, specifically God as our Father. I'm going to read a portion of a text from 1 John 4, which we will then expand on in our second point. But the portion of this text is this. Love is from God. I'm skipping down. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. See, what we learn from this text is that God is love. He does not have love for us, but in fact, God is love. He is the definition of love. That is a core part of his identity. That is a core part of what makes God God is that he is a perfect lover. He loves us perfectly. And then what we see is that the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So there's an understanding that there's an assumption here that we are dead, right? That we might live through him. So in order for us to have need his son, Jesus, to live, that implies that we are at first dead spiritually. So what we see is that God is already resolving the need 
that our sin creates before we're even born. 2,000 years before you were even born, God resolved the sin that he knew, the need that he knew your sin would be creating by sending Jesus to be that wrath-averting sacrifice for our sins. He's giving us life. He's solving our problems before we're even born. And then what we see then is he freely manifests himself among us. He gives himself. He gives of his love. He gives of his heart. And he gives of his life in the person and in the work of Jesus. But how interesting is it that it is, it is really often quite difficult to see God as delivering a self-sacrificing, anticipatory giving love. There's actually a lot of misconceptions about how God the Father loves us. Many times, often, because we've had difficulties in our own relationships with our fathers. But there's a few misconceptions about God the Father. One of them is that maybe God is angry. Or maybe God is withholding, or maybe God is passive aggressive, or the worst one, that God is withdrawn. C.S. Lewis quotes and says, the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. And why do we struggle so much? We see in the Bible this passage that says, God is love. He meets our spiritual needs by sending Christ as our substitute, sending his son. And then we see that he makes himself manifest. He gives himself to us in the person of Jesus. He gives us his own heart. But so often it, we can believe that maybe God is withholding or he's angry or he's passive aggressive. Why do we struggle with this? Well, I think sometimes we struggle to reconcile God's justice and his anger at sin versus his love for us, don't we? Because the Bible is filled with conversations about a God who is both fully loving yet also fully just and punishes sin. So we struggle with that. Maybe that God is angry with us. Um, sometimes we struggle with certain passages that promise us blessing with obedience. It says, if you obey, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, you will be cursed. And that can be sometimes confusing for us. Sometimes we struggle with suffering and God's redemption of our sin and brokenness versus not causing it, right? So sometimes we can look at our own suffering that we're experiencing and say, well, maybe God is just passive aggressively punishing me because I'm sinful or I'm doing bad things. And so he allows bad things into my life to just kind of be passive aggressively punishing me. Maybe he's causing it. There's a tension there, right? But finally, in the worst part that God has withdrawn, that many of us feel that way, I, I just, I think that we've all had that sinking feeling. I've, your pastor, me, I've had that sinking feeling. Am I alone? Am I just praying to the ceiling tiles? When I pray, is God real? Have I staked my life? Have I staked my eternal destiny on a lie? God, are you even here? And many times we ask that in the dark and don't get an immediate response, do we? You see, our feelings about God often shape our understanding of the facts of Scripture because the root of all of this is that rooted in the human heart, receiving love is the hardest work of the Christian. My friends, it is in general hard to receive love, but it is almost impossible to receive a love that we know we haven't earned and that we don't deserve. This is why when we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that's why the gospel is both extremely easy and extremely hard. It's easy in the fact that you don't have to do anything to earn it. All you have to do is simply hear the message of Jesus, believe that it's true for you, see your need for him and then entrust your life to him by obeying him and making Jesus Lord over your life, right? 
So that's that's the easy part. But the hard part is receiving an unearned, undeserved love. It's almost impossible to do it because built into the human heart, we want there to be a tit-for-tat relationship. Built within the human heart, we want to earn the love that we receive. It's hard to receive love, but it's almost impossible to receive a love that we know we haven't earned and don't deserve. And so that's why it's easy to fit God into a moralistic category that says, well, when I sin, God just just passive aggressively punishes me by let suffering into my life. Or maybe God's angry with me because I'm just a bad person. And that's why these things are happening. Or maybe God just doesn't care about me. Right? It's so easy to slip into those things and then slip into, well, maybe I just need to work harder in the church. I need to serve more. I need to do more for God so that he'll pay attention to me. Maybe I just need to repent more so that he won't be angry with me. Or maybe I just need to reject him because he's, he's silly and passive aggressive. And so I'm just going to do what I want anyway. Live and let live. And how a Christian church versus a gospel-centric church responds to this idea of receiving love is very telling. You see, the Christian church's response to understanding God's love for us is work for most of God's love, work for most of it. So I'd say most Christian churches in the West will preach free salvation. They'll say Jesus died on the cross and for your sins, right? And that is an element of the gospel. But you have to earn his love and you have to earn the experience of his love. Right? So in order to feel close to God, you got to do certain things. Read your Bible and pray. You got to do a service projects. Serve within the church. Right? So you can get in through salvation free. It's, it's free salvation, but it's earned love, earned attention from God. God really loves the people that are serving hard. He really loves those people that are working hard, going on the mission trips. They're the super Christians. And that's what kind of the Christian church's response, and even maybe how they're, they don't explicitly state that, but in their culture, that's what they're communicating. But how does a gospel-centric church respond to this? Well, it's an understanding of two things. It's an understanding of adoption and an understanding of identity, both of which we see in 1 John. So in 1 John 3, 1, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. My friends, we are loved not because of our obedience, but rather because we are an orphan and we are in need of adoption that God has chosen to love us. We are brought into God's family as a son and daughter without a need to earn love. Typically, when you adopt someone, they're in need. They have a need. They can't provide anything for you. They can't do anything for you. But rather, out of the overflow of your love, you bring them into your family and you treat them like a son and daughter. I was adopted when I was three days old, and I never felt like an outcast in my family. I felt fully accepted and loved because my parents loved me as a son, even though I wasn't biologically their child. And what this means for a gospel centered church, this idea of adoption means that your sin does not dictate your place in God's family or in your church family. That you can be free to fail and be honest about that. And that doesn't change your position before God as a son or daughter. And it does not change your position within our church family as a beloved member of our church family here in Clarksville. And what that generates, that there's a generation that happens there when your sin doesn't dictate your standing. What that means is that you can have honesty, you can have transparency, you can have humility and repentance and faith. That means that you can freely screw up. 
that means that you can freely acknowledge that you failed because it won't affect your identity. And what that rejects, that generates certain things, right? But then it also rejects certain things too. It rejects shame and it rejects disappointment, right? Like you don't have to be disappointed in yourself because in fact, our natural state is to try to earn love and to to be broken, right? So when we're still living out of that fleshly nature within us, uh, it's it's normal. And God has already allotted and resolved that at the cross of Christ. And so we can freely admit when we screw up and say, you know what, this is why Jesus had to come. But then it also rejects shame too. So we could be honest about it because our position, our stand, our sin does not affect our standing, both within God's family and within our church family. So adoption is key. That's how a gospel-centered church understands receiving love. It's not earned experience. It is given experience. Why? Because we're sons and daughters. Secondly, why? Because of our core identity has now been changed for the follower of Jesus. Look with me at 1 John 4, 16 to 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. Listen to that phrase again. The love that God has for us, God's love abides in us. But that last phrase, because as he is, so are we in this world. C.S. Lewis states this quote in The Problem of Pain. He says, we are not made primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. My friends, you were created to be a recipient of God's love. This is why we live in a world that seeks love in all the wrong places. This is why we try to fulfill our truest destiny, but it's hopeless apart from Christ because we were meant to be receiving Christ's love, God's love for us. But so often when we reject God, we seek to get the love from somebody else, right? When we engage in sex outside of marriage, when we look at pornography, when we overwork, when we over-obsess about our children, when we uh, are self-focused and selfish and seek our own self-love, what you're trying to do is, is you're trying to receive a love substitute in your life. We're, we're meant to be loved by God. And when we don't freely receive that, so often we look for love substitutes in so many other areas. Those are called idols. So you're created to be a recipient of God's love. And then what we find then, if this is the case, then your identity is secure. That when you become a follower of Jesus, you are not identified as a sinner. You're identified as a saint. So that when you sin, you're actually acting in opposition to your truest identity, who you're created to be. And when you walk in holiness, when you walk in sexual purity, when you reject pornography, when you when you have patterns of, of work and rest and healthy Sabbath, when when you don't place a family member or a spouse or your children as the seat of God in your life, when you place God as the seat of God in your life, then what you see is that you're living out of your truest identity, right? That's actually who you created to be. And so what that does, that generates honesty, transparency, humility, repentance, and faith. And that rejects shame and disappointment too, because then our chorus identity is not based on our performance, but it's actually given to us. So he is, as he is, so also are we in this world, 1 John 4, 16 to 17. 
So this means that uh, I, I, a couple months ago, had somebody come to me and confess a, a sin, a, a deep sin that they're struggling with. And this, this happened a couple months ago. And the first thing I said to them, I was sitting on my front porch as we talked, we were smoking a cigar on my front porch. And the first thing I said to them is, is, do you know that I'm so proud of you? I'm proud of you. That was my response to them. And of course, they were not expecting this from a pastor when they had just confessed that they were sinning. I said, I'm proud of you. And they looked at me like, what, why? And I said, I'm not proud that you're sinning, but I'm proud of where you've come from. I'm proud that you gave your life to Jesus. I'm proud that you've been on this journey. And just because you stumble once doesn't change your identity. It doesn't change that you're a son of God and you're still completely loved and forgiven and free. And so I can be proud of you, even though I'm sad that you're doing this because you're not living out of your truest identity. You're not living out of who God created you to be in this moment and this sin. And so actually to become who you truly are is to embrace holiness. It's to embrace a, a, a life of Christ-likeness because that is who you really are, son. You're a son of God. You're adopted into his family and he loves you regardless of whether you sin or not, but you're just invited to live like Jesus because it's going to make your life better when you live like Jesus. You're going to have less stress in your life. You're going to have more joy and more peace. That's how we can respond as a church family to sin and brokenness and struggles is with grace and humility, deference, love, honesty, transparency, and mutual respect. Then we can freely repent because our identity isn't in it. Our identity is secured in Christ. Our identity is already set. And we're already adopted. No need to earn a seat at the table so we can be honest about our failures. So, so love receives first and rejects an earning love. And this really is the hardest road to take. It's the best road. And a gospel-centered church means that receiving love is the basis for our identity, not our actions. Our sin does not determine our standing before God. So as we see that a gospel-centered church focuses on receiving love first, and secondly, a gospel-centered church then sees that, that love responds second. There's an order to this. 1 John 4, 7 to 11. Remember we read that little passage I said was broken up at the beginning of our sermon. Well, this is the full uh, three or four verses here. It says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved him, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the wrath of earning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, when we receive the love of God and because God is love, this actually is what gives us the capacity to love others. Remember what our definition of gospel centric love is. It's a self-giving love that seeks the greatest and highest good of another. But you see, we can't truly do this apart from God's love abiding in us. You can't do this apart from God's love abiding in you. You can't truly be self-giving unless you've already been given to, right? You can't seek the greatest and highest good of others unless your greatest and highest good and your need has already been met in Christ, right? So we must have to receive this. And within this text is some of the most beautiful and freeing passages in the Bible. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the wrath-averting sacrifice of appreciation for our sins. He says, this is love, that God loves us first. He literally says, not that we loved God, but he loved us. Do you see how then you pull back for a second, just pause for one second, and see the goal of most Christian churches is to love God and love others. We exist to love God and love others. That is directly opposed to this text right here. That we don't exist to love God and love others. We exist not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We exist to be a recipient of God's love. And then God acts on that love by solving the problem of brokenness and giving us himself, right? So that's why part of our definition of love is a self-giving love. Why? Because God gave of himself in the person and the work of Jesus. And because Jesus gave himself ultimately for us, we can give ourselves towards others in love. So if God loved us first, then the second part, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, we can love God back and act on that love when we receive it first. Every single phrase about love has a conditioned and reflexive response to God's love. It's always conditioned on God's love for us. It's never just you got to shore up some love and do it better. It's always God loved you, thus you love others. And we see in 1 John 3.16, just another passage, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we lay down our lives down for others? Why? Because Jesus laid his life down for us. It begins with receiving, but always overflows by responding to loving others. Now, responding to love, I want us to do a comparison between a Christian church and a gospel-centered church. The Christian Church says love equals serving others. Again, remember, we, the, the phrases of we exist to love God and love others, that, that God loves us. God loved us. Jesus died for us. And now you must love others. And God did his part. You do yours. God served us. Now you got to serve others. And it just so happens that that also, that theology helps manipulate people into serving within a church. Right? Come serve on the greeting team. Come serve with setup. Come serve on service projects or missions trips. You need to love God and love others and do what you were created to do. Okay? That's what the Christian church said. And that's how the bulk of churches recruit. Is come on, let's serve. Let's love God back. Let's love others. Come on, do it. Serve to death. Work yourself to death. But the gospel church says, the gospel-centric church says, love is a self-giving love. And love seeks the greatest and highest good of another. See, the highest good of others is to believe the gospel and live in that belief. It's not just to serve, right? And what we see is that truest love does not always agree with you. When you have someone that loves you, they're not always going to agree with you. If they agree with you, they actually don't love you all the time. If they agree with you all the time, they don't truly, deeply love you. And what we do, what we see is that we live in a loveless world. And we see this secular world that says, people think that you're loved if you never say no to them, right? You always affirm them and you just say, you're perfect just the way you are. And what that is, my friends, is indifference. And we looked at the C.S. Lewis quote a few minutes ago, the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. That's indifference. That's the opposite of love. Just agree with me and leave me alone to do what I want to do. That is not love, my friends. You see, true love always changes the recipient of that love. 
And that goes back to this idea that we read a few minutes ago, that we may live through him. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God, God's self-giving love towards us allows us to become alive again. And true love always changes the recipient of that love. And sometimes love says no, and sometimes love says yes. Love sometimes says no. Think about it in the context of a marriage. We want our spouse to be jealous for our affections. We want our spouse to be interested in us. We want our spouse to want us and to want our attention, right? And so sometimes we'll have our spouse who truly loves us say, don't do this to yourself. Don't do this to others. Don't do this to our community or our family. Don't reject us. Don't go looking for love in other places outside of our intimate marriage. That's what a marriage does. Healthy marriages do that. And that's what healthy churches do too. Don't do this sin. Don't engage with this thing. It's going to hurt you. You are not always right. If you have a God that always agrees with you, you don't worship the true God. And so true love says no to people sometimes. It says, don't do this to yourself. Don't do this to others. Care for others. This selfish action is hurting other people, or this selfish action is hurting our community. That's why church discipline can be beautiful and healing and restorative and loving. It's not meant to be harmful. See, the affection of a spouse says, I want you. And what do you say in almost every marriage vow? Forsaking all others. Healthy marriages say no to billions of other people in the world. And so true love corrects us for our greatest and highest good. So that means if your friends that truly love you and deeply care about you will oftentimes disagree with you and call you out on things because they're always lovingly correcting us for our highest and greatest good. But love doesn't just say no. Love also says yes. What are some of the things that love says yes to? Love says yes to self-abandon. That means totally giving yourself to God. You can don't have to be constantly thinking about yourself and worried about yourself. You can have self-abandon. Love says yes to self-giving. You can give to others of yourself without needing reciprocation. Do you know how freeing that is to be able to serve others without needing them to appreciate you? You have so much more enjoyment than if you had a need for others to appreciate you. And true love says yes to holiness and to our true identity. It's inviting us into a new way of living in community. That's how gospel-centered church views uh, responding to love. It's an invitation into a new way of living. It's saying, come, you don't have to serve, but we get to serve. We get to give of ourselves because Jesus has given towards us. And by the way, even if you didn't do it, he still loves you anyway. So guess what? You get to do it so that you can experience the joy and the benefit of a self-giving love that seeks the highest and greatest good of others. And guess what? You're going to be in a community, in a church family that's going to love you and correct you when you're going to do things that are going to harm you, right? Like, isn't that love? Isn't that care? To kind of summarize this, true responsive love, to respond to the love and loving others, true love is generative. Martin Luther said this, he said, the love of God does not find but creates that which is lovable. Let me read that again. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is lovable. You see, God seeks us and loves us when we didn't love him back and we were his enemies. And he loves us into being lovable. And so when you love others self-sacrificially, 
when you seek their greatest and highest good, you love others into being lovable. It is impossible to truly love someone and not have them change under the power of that love. So love responds second to change the recipient of their love. And so just a question for you, are others changed under the power of your love for them like God changes you under the power of his love? That's a good way to see if you're truly loving people with a self-giving love that seeks their greatest and highest good. You see, you reflect your belief of God's love onto others. So if you think that God selflessly loves you, then you can selflessly love others. But if you think that God loves you maybe begrudgingly or God loves you in such a way that you can respond to him and serve him in some way, then that's how you're going to love others. So you actually, how you love others is reflective of how you think God loves you. And so the easiest way to see your theology of love is how you respond to others who've disappointed you. When others don't do what you want them to do, when others fail you, they're not reliable, how you love them and care for them is truly what you think about love and truly what you think about how God loves you. So secondly, love responds. Thirdly, love reproduces. John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, when we receive love, we're free. When we respond to love, we can change others. And when we reproduce love, we are a witness to the watching world. When we do this in public, when other people see us loving uh, others within our church family and outside of our church family, we are a witness of God's love to a watching world. Love is mission. Remember, I want to remind us again of our definition of love. Gospel-centric love is a self-giving love that seeks the greatest and highest good of another. And when people on the outside see that, they get changed too. You don't just change the recipient of your love. You change when other people observe how you're loving. So reproducing love. How does the Christian church respond versus how a gospel-centric church responds? A Christian church, the modern Western Christian church says, serve with me to spread the love, right? The goal is that your job is to serve within the church, to love others, to go on missions trips, right? And we exist to love God and love others. And what that ends up doing is pushing people into guilt and shame cycles where service is the solution, right? So you're, you feel guilty or you feel shameful, or maybe you feel like you need to earn some of God's love and attention. And so then you're like, oh, I can solve that. I can get God's love. I can get God's attention. I can feel better about myself by serving the church. And what that is, is church-centric. And so we've seen people cycle into our church. And how I know that this might be how they've been discipled is if they come to our church and immediately want to start serving. Hey, let me serve with this. Let me serve with that. Let me do this. Let me do that. So we have a rule within our church community to be gospel-centered. We have a rule. And it's you come for 45 days before you're asked to serve on a team. Because we want to know that you're coming for the right reasons and that you're going to serve out of an overflow of how God has served you. So we want you to come and receive from our church. And then only after you've been received, you've been filled up, you've been relaxed, you can walk into church on Sundays and not have a role to play. Then we ask you to serve on a team after 45 days, because we feel like that's a good detox time. So you're not serving for the wrong reasons, but you're serving out of an overflow. So a gospel-centered church that moves us, of course, we're trying to be a gospel-centered church, and I believe we are a gospel-centered church. And what we say is that we come and receive with me and see how that changes you. 
See, the Christian church says, serve with me to spread the love. The gospel-centered church says, come receive with me, and we're going to see how that changes you. So our job is to give of ourselves to others and to invite them to receive. And we exist to be loved. Thus, it's not about what you can do for me or what you can do for my church or my goals. It's Jesus-centered, not church-centered. He says, as I have loved you. People follow Jesus when the life you live is beautiful. People are inspired to follow Jesus when you have a beautiful life, a self-giving life that doesn't need anything from anybody else in return. And in order to intentionally love others, what it does require is self-sacrifice, but it also requires vulnerability. And that's why it's so much easier to go serve on a service project, right? It's so easy to give food to the homeless. It's so easy to go on a missions trip for a week. It's much harder to invite your neighbors into your house because you're being vulnerable with them. You have to open up your heart and your life. You have to be willing to be hurt. And many people within the modern Christian church are too scared of being hurt. And so they never truly open up their lives and have a self-giving love to others because they haven't really understood the self-giving love of God towards them. And so what they do is they become impenetrable. C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Four Loves. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And my friends, you have to be the real deal if you're going to do this right. If we're going to do this right as a church, we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we first have to be already receiving the love of Jesus, putting ourselves in the postures and means of grace to receive the love of Jesus through the spending time with Him, through being in community, through coming to church on a Sunday. It's not the actions that do anything. It's just reminding our forgetful hearts of the love that God already has for us, right? That we already have to be responding to this. We have to be loving others in response to the love that we have. And then that is how it is reproduced in others. So just a couple questions as we think about how love reproduces thirdly and is relentlessly vulnerable. Is are you opening your heart and home to others who could hurt you? And are you self-giving? It's a good question to ask us. So as we think about a gospel-centered church, Christian church versus a gospel-centered church, this makes sense to you. My friends, I don't want us to compromise. Life is too short and church planting is too hard to plant a mediocre Christian church. It's way too easy to slip into that. We don't want to compromise. But what we want is the top shelf, foolproof, all access, fresh baked good news. And it begins by receiving the love of God for us in faith without earning. It continues by responding to the love of God for us in community without compromise. Telling one another in love, no, and in love, yes, no compromise, but truly responding to the love of God to to each other in community. And then finally, we multiply love by reproducing the love of God in others through invitation and not fear. Gospel-centric love, as a reminder, a self-giving love that seeks the greatest and highest good of the other. And just a reminder just about what the gospel is. The gospel is the true story about Jesus, 
who is God, stepping out of eternity into human history, solving the problem of brokenness, reuniting us with God, our Father, giving us of himself through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, and then ushering in a completely new way of life that ends in peace and glory with himself. So this is how we operate in a family. This is how Redeeming Hope does it. This is how we stay gospel-centered as a church. We rest in love. That's receiving. We have discipleship and grace. That's responding. That's encouraging people towards obedience and faith and holiness. True love is saying no and yes. And then finally, how we operate in a family is mission through invitation. We invite people in with us to see the work of God within us. And that is how we reproduce it. In this is love, not that we loved God but that he loved us and gave himself for us. My friends, let's believe that this week. Let's be a gospel-centered church. Let's do the hard work. Let's do it right. Let's see the beautiful result of that as we're following and receiving the love of Jesus in faith. Thank you so much for listening and have a good week. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.